Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we're speaking with Craig Golanowski, President and Managing Partner of Carbon Infrastructure Partners. In today's discussion, we get into the details of the carbon industry. Craig and his partners are leveraging years of private equity experience to invest in energy production and the subsequent carbon capture and storage, effectively creating clean energy from otherwise, well, dirty energy. There is no doubt that carbon markets, both regulated and voluntary, are complex and continuously changing. That said, we're seeing the formation of an industry where market participants can capitalize on opportunities to reduce or remove carbon emissions. In the case of Carbon Infrastructure Partners, Craig makes the analogy that their investments are analogous to the existing infrastructure we have in our cities. We have the power grid, the highways, the wastewater removal systems. In the case of emissions, carbon capture is an additional layer of this infrastructure, enabling us to live and benefit from cleaner energy production. To me, this is a fascinating new industry and there's tons to learn, so enjoy the show. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding service provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in our show notes. Now enjoy the show. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation because... The world of carbon is becoming more and more, I think, more and more interesting, but certainly more and more on the tables of investors. So why don't you start off with a bit of an introduction about yourself and a bit of an introduction about Carbon Infrastructure Partners. And I want to get into all things private equity and in and around this world of carbon. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And I agree with you. I think this issue of carbon emissions, GHG emissions, and, and energy is an incredible challenge and one that demands a lot of attention right now. And so Carbon Infrastructure Partners, we're an investment management firm who our basic view is that in order to reconcile this energy demands for 7.7 billion people and how we reduce emissions, what our view is, is that we need to look at investing across the carbon life cycle. So carbon is an element. Our bodies are made out of carbon. All the materials, the buildings, the table you're sitting at is made out of carbon. And so too, our, our 85% of our primary energy uses carbon in the form of oil, gas, and, and coal. And so we need to, you know, have some harmony with carbon and think of it as a, you know, by investing across its life cycle. So what does that mean? It means we're going to continue to produce energy, hydrocarbon-based energy. 
And we need to stop dumping the CO2 into the atmosphere. We need to capture that CO2 and put it back into the subsurface, basically where we got it from. And so having a more holistic view of energy that sort of considers both where we're going to get our energy from and how we have a a sense of harmony with the atmosphere is really what we see as being where the energy industry needs to go over the coming decades. Obviously, there's an economic motive behind this. Otherwise, the commercial aspects of your fund wouldn't work. What I want to hear about and get a little bit more perspective on is one, your private equity experience and your background there, but then also the connection between your oil and gas investing and now into decarbonization. You're right. Exactly correct. Is that economics are critical and carbon capture and storage specifically, you know, it's been around a long time as a technology. It's really what's innovative or what's different now is that there is a economic model starting in the United States, the section 45Q tax credit is a value on avoided emissions. So the United States government will pay somebody $50 a ton to capture and sequester CO2 into the subsurface. And in Canada, we have a variety of other carbon prices. The the carbon tax is one that everyone's familiar with. That's expected to increase to $170 a ton in 2030. And that's an incredible price for carbon. It may very well be the highest price on earth today. That will cause very significant changes in the price of energy. And so there's a corresponding economic signal to not emit CO2 or change how we think about energy. So carbon prices are critical. And I would just say that as an overall idea, putting prices on carbon is absolutely necessary to allow market forces and innovation to actually solve these problems. And one of the things we we need to just avoid or ideas that are really the same as central planning around energy. So the the biggest risk we have is that the government picks winners and losers and specifically decides that look, like we're, we we know the answer as to how we're going to we're going to evolve the energy system. The fact is no one really does know the answer. We have scenarios, we have sort of reasonable views as to what are the potential solutions. But the reality of it is a a carbon price allows market forces to optimize and figure it out. And so that's really what drives the economics behind carbon capture and storage. That's a question I want to, or a point I want to dive deeper in. In using the market mechanism to drive incentive and drive innovation and drive, yeah, really an incentive to go out there and reduce the amount of emissions that are coming out or find ways to capture them or mitigate or who knows? I'm, I'm I'm certainly not an expert. What I but what I really like to hear is that it sounds like governments are not stepping in as a central planner, but more so in saying use the market to figure it out. We'll give you X percent or X amount for each ton sequestered or reduced. And so I think that's very promising. And it sounds like the we're we're in the very early innings of a really interesting industry. Yeah, that's right. So things like the Canadian Clean Fuel Standard, things like the California Clean Fuel Standard are versions of this theme where, you know, a baseline is set for liquid fuels 
folks that produce liquid fuels below that have a carbon intensity that's below the baseline, you know, create credits, folks that are producing liquid fuels above the baseline need to buy credits. And so there is a carrot and a stick embedded into the sort of the market policy. And so those are pretty effective in the Biden administration, in the reconciliation bill that's in Congress. You know, there's sort of a distorted version of the clean fuel standard, which are the clean electricity standard, pardon me. So the clean electricity standard was originally designed so that in as a federal standard in the United States, so that electricity production above the baseline, you know, would have to buy credits electricity production with the carbon intensity below the baseline would generate credits. So these carbon prices and market signals are critical to allow utilities and refining companies or new power startups or new hydrogen startups to be able to supply an energy product into the market that's a lower carbon product and then have an economic model. So when they sit down with their investors and say, we need to invest a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars into this project. There's a clear economic model where revenues are greater than expenses. The difference between that divided by the capital invested creates a rate of return as fiduciaries, as investment managers, as directors of corporations. You know, we're held to the standard of being able to are requiring us to show us a very clear, specific economic model. And so that's where policy designs around carbon prices allow us to actually unlock capital and deploy capital into projects. And it really is, I think, what the coming years, I I agree with your point, like in the coming years, we are going to see, you know, acceleration of business models that do reduce emissions. What I'm also interested in is I want to tap into your past experience. You've been in private equity for, I mean, I think your entire career and helped deploy over a billion in capital. So can you give us a bit of background on that? And then let's start taking it into some of the projects and what you're looking at at Carbon. And and I want to talk about the economics of, of the projects you're doing and what they look like. You know, if I was an investor or if I was pitching a project, what should I be talking about? That kind of thing. But let's start off with, with some of the private equi- equity experience you've had before this. You know, we've been uh, managing oil and gas private equity funds for around 20 years. And so we've backed 65 different upstream production, exploration and production companies over the years with yeah, 1.2, 1.3 billion of capital. So today we, you know, have a portfolio of about 50,000 barrels a day of production, largely oil weighted in Western Canada. So we, we sort of bring a background as energy professionals out of the table. And I think it's certainly one of the things that is is a little bit missing in the energy debate. I think we're seeing, you know, in particular in Europe, as we speak, basically the consequences of not really fully thinking through some of the issues around oil and gas and renewables and how reality really operates. And so sort of the background I bring or what I believe I bring is you know, the moment I really realized the problem of emissions, uh, you know, I was at Stanford, I was at a conference, and it was the first time I'd heard the number, you know, 40 billion tons a year. So that's about the amount of CO2 that human beings emit into the atmosphere every year. 
It's an incredible number because when you start really mapping out where is that CO2 coming from, it's predominantly from the use of coal, oil, and natural gas. But, you know, it's also things like cement production. It's like fertilizer production, steel production, plastics. You know, when you really start like going through the problem and saying, well, what do we do tomorrow to start reducing emissions? The perspective that I bring to it is that the idea we're going to use less energy next year or the year after, that cannot be true. There's 7.7 billion people in the world and economic prosperity and energy use are linearly related. So in other words, people want to advance themselves, you know, buy their first appliance, have an air conditioning unit in their apartment buy a car. There's billions of people that are looking to make those kinds of gains in their lifestyle and standard of living. The energy we're going to need to do that is incredible. So we have to be able to produce the energy. Oil, gas, and coal are 85% of primary energy. So in the list of options, you've got oil, gas, coal, nuclear, hydro, wind, and solar. Those are our basic choices. Electricity, is not primary energy. Electricity is an energy carrier. Things like hydrogen, hydrogen is not energy. Hydrogen is an energy carrier. So we don't have that many choices as to how do we actually produce the amount of energy that we need and that's growing. And so you know, our perspective is that oil demand, natural gas demand, coal demand are growing. They're going to continue to grow. And that the idea that we're going to somehow limit the demand growth. I I just reject that as an energy professional. So then I say, well, what do we actually do about this problem if you can't solve it in a simplistic way? It turns out we have this technology called carbon capture and storage that we are able to, rather than emit that CO2 into the atmosphere from, say, the production of electricity or the production of cement, you know, we can capture that CO2 and pump it back down into the subsurface, which is where the carbon came from in the first place. So the oil, gas, and coal was under the ground. We extract it, we use it, we gain the energy out of it, and then we can put the CO2 back into the subsurface. So our backgrounds are, we bring an understanding of the subsurface. On my team, we have geologists and engineers and we've been energy professionals, so we understand things like pipelines and drilling rigs and gas turbines and power plants and you know the mechanics of the industrial system. And what we're really just trying to say is that, look, there are opportunities within basically three themes. So what we see is three basic themes. Is first is much higher energy prices. We see much higher carbon prices, and we see reliability problems everywhere in the energy system. What's happening in Europe right now is a reliability problem. And and the basic reason for that is, is that the governments around the world and in the United States and in in Europe, you have chosen that wind and solar are sort of this dominant answer. They're, They're the dominant solution. And wind and solar are part of the portfolio. They need to keep growing. But what happens is, is the more wind and solar you introduce into the energy system, the more weather dependency we introduce into the energy system. So solar panels don't generate electricity at night. Wind farms only produce wind or electricity when it's windy. We've created this reliability problem 
And so that's a critical theme. So when we look at what are some solutions that are economically viable, what we generally just see is that carbon capture and storage will enable us to produce zero emission electricity, zero emission hydrogen, zero emission you know, ammonia, these various energy carriers. And we can continue to use oil, gas, and coal. We're going to continue to use them anyway. So the oil and gas and coal that we use we can take the carbon dioxide out of those energy sources to create better energy products. And so that's the general thesis. And again, we we bring that sort of energy background to the table as we think about emissions and think about this problem. And I and I really think we have a very unique perspective and, and a unique position on how the energy industry will evolve over time. So take me into the carbon capture and storage in the sense that as a private equity firm, you will invest in projects which will effectively build out these facilities. What's the revenue model to them? And, and ultimately, I mean, what you're doing is, is just packing this out and saying, hey, here's our, here's our return on this. So if you're to paint that picture from a carbon capture facility all the way through to the benefit of what you're doing is we're only going to see carbon prices go up. You know, I think the industry is really, at least that's the narrative they're pushing right now. But with that, what does your model look like there? And what is, yeah, what are some of the metrics around this? Yeah. So, you know, we can just walk through a, an example. Let's say we we want to do equip a natural gas fire turbine that's generating electricity with carbon capture. Okay. So we know there is a the, within that exhaust stream. Let, uh, sorry, let me just let me just add a little bit more color there because this this actually I didn't realize this, but turbines effectively jet engines as what would be on the side of a Boeing or Airbus are what fire turbines to create energy. Yes, that's right. So, you know, natural gas-based electricity in the United States is the largest form of electricity generation. Coal is next, and then renewables, and including hydro and nuclear, are important but smaller. And so, essentially, to create electricity, we use heat. That heat turns, you know, a turbine, and that shaft that's turning generates electricity as it turns a generator. And so these are the basic, a wind turbine does the same thing. It uses the wind, it turns a generator, it makes electricity. You know, the photovoltaic effect for a solar panel is a little bit different. In any case, the heat that is created through the combustion of natural gas or coal, that results in carbon dioxide. And so that carbon dioxide is something that we are able to capture by you know running that exhaust through a chemical that's called emine that chemical loves to bind with co2 and once that chemical absorbs that co2 we can then boil off that amine so imagine just in a kettle boiling it and the steam is pure co2 yeah, that's how it works. It's been around a long time. The, the basic process of sweetening gas is what is sort of the name of this process. And then that CO2, which is now on it isolated, is compressed. So it goes into a compressor and we compress it from a gas into a liquid. And then that liquid can be pumped down into the ground, into a reservoir. So a, a part of the subsurface that we know will keep the CO2 down there. 
And that CO2 gets uh, pumped down and it binds with the rocks and it dissolves in some of the brine water that's down there and it's, it's held in place with a seal. And basically it just stays there forever. So we know that oil and natural gas, when it's in a trap and in a seal, those, those things have been there millions of years. So it's using those same sort of ideas to put that CO2 back into the subsurface. And so in this little example we just provided is we can have electricity that's dispatchable. So when we need it, we could just call on that power plant or it's base load. It runs all the time and it's generating zero emissions and it uses natural gas, which we happen to have an abundance of in North America. And so we can continue to have, you know, reliable, affordable electricity and not have the emissions. And so that whole flow does require a price on carbon. You know, the basic framework in Canada is in place to be able to bring these forward. So in keeping it simple, you've got a and I don't even know the how many units would be in a gas-fired or natural gas turbine power plant, but let's just keep this dead simple. We've got a single turbine spinning a generator, and it's kicking off its emissions of which are captured, and the CO2 after going through this chemical is then separated out, and you're able to compress this into a liquid, put it in the ground. Now, does this effectively turn that single turbine into a net zero producer of energy? And then, I mean, how many tons are we talking of, of carbon that's captured and, and paid off? And, and the economic model, I would imagine, is you look and say, okay, well, with creating this net zero form of, of energy, we're able to sell the carbon offsets or, you know, what, what's that look like? Yeah, it's all good questions. So there's a variety of terminology that you've used that's worth putting some definition. Please do, because I'm just spinning this up from a few things I've read. I find it very interesting, but I'm learning as we go, and I hope the listeners are as well. Yeah, you bet. The sort of the definition of net zero is that you know anthropogenic emissions over time are offset or balanced by removals of CO2 over time. So what does that mean? So we have basically two choices. We can not emit and or we can pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Okay. So that's how you achieve net zero. Now, not emitting is actually easier and cheaper by close to an order of magnitude than pulling carbon dioxide out of the air. People may be hearing about direct air capture and it's very sexy and everything else, but there is a very small amount of CO2 in the air. And so to pull it out of the air requires an incredible amount of energy. Mm. Whereas in the example of this exhaust stream coming off a natural gas turbine, you know, that's around four to 6% of that exhaust is carbon dioxide. And so the amount of energy needed to isolate the carbon dioxide is a lot less than in just the ambient air, okay? It costs energy to do gas separation and isolate carbon dioxide. But anyway, so net zero, a power plant, like I just described, that has carbon capture would not be emitting carbon dioxide. So it is a zero for the equation. And so in, a, in Canada, that basic flow would create a something called a performance credit. So in Alberta specifically, you would essentially be able to earn a credit equal to the carbon tax. So as the carbon tax goes 
you know, it's next year it's 50 bucks a ton. So by producing electricity that is zero emission electricity, you get to generate the 50 bucks a ton worth of credit. So that's how it works in Canada. In the United States, it would be a little bit different because the United States doesn't have a carbon tax. You would you know, be able to generate credits under the, the Section 45Q tax credit. And that's based on how many tons you captured and sequestered. And th- that's 50 bucks a ton US dollars. And so those are sort of the ways to do it. But when people talk about offset credits, what they're typically referring to is this voluntary market. And so the voluntary market is to pay for things that are removing CO2 from the atmosphere. So there's a couple of different ways we can do that. We can have different forestry practices. We can actually pull CO2 out of the air called direct air capture. And so those would be referred to as negative emissions. And so negative meaning you're actually reducing the CO2 in the atmosphere. Whereas all the stuff I was just describing with carbon capture, carbon capture does something called an avoided emission. So an avoided emission is an emission that we were otherwise going to do, but we just didn't do it. And so that's a little bit different than a negative emission. But in practical terms, you know, avoided emissions are, are going to be things that come out of industry. Wind and solar, for example, that's an avoided emission because you you otherwise would have produced that electricity with emissions, but you did a solar panel and you didn't emit. So that's an avoided emission. So there's a lot of uh, these sort of specific nomenclature yeah. that are important. A- to- am I wrong in the sense that regardless of if it's a an avoided emission or a negative emission, there's still a value to that to that emission, to that credit? It's critical to have values on avoided emissions, and we do that now broadly. So we have a carbon tax in Canada, uh, the Canadian Clean Fuel Standard, any sort of subsidies or incentives for wind and solar, you know, those are a form of a value for an avoided emission. And so, yeah, the most of the policies that we would have are actually designed to avoid emissions. And so when you put a carbon capture facility in, what is the economic model there? Yeah, well, so basically... Again, coming back to our power plant example, so we would be in selling power to the grid. You know, someone like yourself, you're you're a business that needs to buy electricity. You know, you may have made a net zero commitment as, let's say you're the Keebler Elf cookie company. (laughs) You're the elf making cookies and okay, great. So you you guys have said, look, we want to be net zero. And uh, so then you figured out where did all your emissions come from? And it turns out the vast majority of your emissions as the elves, the cookie elves, will come from the electricity you buy because the machines to actually make the cookies are run on electricity. And so, in fact, the electricity that you buy, so you'll figure out and say, well, where am I getting that electricity from? And you and I could enter into a power purchase agreement where you would be buying zero emission electricity. That's one part of this model. So I know I can sell my power. I'm going to sell it to the cookie company. And then when I do my economics, so I've got a product that I'm selling, and then I'll be generating carbon credits that are, let's say, in a Canadian context under the Alberta tier program. So I I know that I can get 50 bucks a ton for those credits. And so then when I do my basic economics, I have power sales 
I've got credit sales, and then I've got operating costs. And as long as the revenues are greater than the operating costs, then I've got a margin. And then I have to figure out, okay, how much did all this cost me to build? And that's sort of that, that's the math. Can we go, can we go deeper on that? What what does it cost to build a facility? And like how many, how many tons of carbon can be sequestered from a facility that yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like it's got to be attached directly to to a production power production facility. Yeah. So, so what what are the economics behind this? What yes. are the actual numbers? So the actual numbers, you know, more or less, you know, give or take, because it's yeah. all very much an emerging industry. But the way to think about it is, you know, somewhere between eighty five and a hundred dollars a ton carbon capture for you know, natural gas fired power production would make a 10% rate of return on that capital. Gotcha. Uh, so that's kind of the roughly the cost. If you were to equip a hydrogen production facility, you know, let's say we want to buy a hydrogen truck from Hyundai or Kenworth or whoever, you know, you're a truck uh, fleet operator and you want to switch over from diesel into a hydrogen fuel cell truck. So you might say, well, how am I going to get hydrogen? <laughs> Which would be a very legitimate question to ask. Yeah. You, you know, if you were to do that same calculation with hydrogen production for, you know, somewhere between 50 and $60 a ton, uh, you could do carbon capture for hydrogen production. When you look at the different applications of carbon capture, certain applications are, are cheaper and less expensive. The least expensive would be for ethanol. If you're equipping carbon capture on an ethanol production facility, that, that's very cost effective, you know, 10 or 15 bucks a ton. So each uh, situation is a little bit different, but, you know, that's kind of the range uh, to think about it is on the low end, 15 bucks a ton. And on the high end for power production would be about a hundred bucks a ton. So, sorry, did I, did I get that correct? It's kind of the cost of, of capture is 15 bucks a ton. Yes, for ethanol, it'd be somewhere around there. And the reason for that is when you make ethanol, the production process of ethanol, the flue gas, if you will, from the production of ethanol is basically 100% pure CO2. Oh, wow. Okay. Those little bacteria, when they're eating the, the grain to make, turn it into alcohol, the byproduct of that is 100% pure CO2. Oh, uh, interesting. When we produce hydrogen with natural gas, you know, that that's also a very highly concentrated CO2 product. And so then there's not a lot of things that need to happen. Whereas, you know, with a natural gas fired turbine, that's only about four to 6% CO2. So there needs to be a lot more equipment, a lot more energy used to actually just get that CO2 because 95% of the exhaust is not CO2. Right. Uh, so that's the way to think about it is the costs are sort of a direct function of how concentrated the CO2 is. And that's why direct air capture is the most expensive. So in the ambient air, it's only 400 parts per million. Gotcha. Okay. So that's why direct air capture is like $1,000 a ton. I see what you're saying. I, I'm pulling this together now. So if I had a carbon capture facility that's just sucking air out of the atmosphere, Four parts per million going through my brine or my my chemical, as you mentioned earlier, to capture and bind to the carbon in that atmospheric air. The the grade at which you're able to pull out 
is so low that it makes it incredibly expensive to do so. That's right. So that those are the laws of thermodynamics. You know, those are physics. Those aren't really up for discussion. Yeah. The amount of energy needed to do gas separation work. You could find those charts in engineering textbooks. Oh, that stuff's easy. We don't need to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> they are, yeah, but, but in your mind, that's how to think about the cost is how concentrated is it? Yeah. And, uh, that, and the cost curve falls out of that concentration. So effectively then there's riper grounds to be applying this carbon capture technology than, than not. Yeah, there's there's areas where you're like, this is an absolute because we'll make more bang for our buck in the carbon offset that you're able to to gain from from the the sequestration, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so just coming back around to carbon offset, so that typically refers to you know something that's a negative emission. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, carbon offset would be more in the voluntary market. Yeah, these are weighted emissions. So you're typically in the statutory carbon market. So that's right, the regulated markets. Regulated markets. That's very much where this plays. And you're exactly correct. There is the strongest economic signals are where the highest carbon prices show up. So I'll give you an example. The California low carbon fuel standard is if you supply liquid fuels to California, it's 200 bucks a ton. And that could be combined with the 45Q in the United States, which is 50 bucks a ton. So the total economic prize is 250 bucks a ton. So that's a really strong signal. So you might you would say, well, how do we get that? Right? What what are those opportunities? So that's ethanol, that's renewable diesels. There's a variety of liquid fuel products that we could make that take advantage of 250 bucks a ton. And that, you know, so those are going to be where your best returns are. Interesting. Now, from an investor standpoint, if you've got family offices, high net worth individuals, they're looking to invest in in the world of decarbonization. Is this more of a feel-good ESG investment theme, if you will? You know, how deep is the economic investment potential for this? Is this, I mean, are we talking Silicon Valley 10 baggers or are we talking, you know, a nice... Yeah, just a solid, consistent return from from the the projects they could invest in. Yeah, it's more of the latter. We you know we called ourselves carbon infrastructure partners. Mm. Very much view these types of investments, this asset class. Yeah, so bold. I I wanted to name our company based on the asset class that I see coming, which is called carbon infrastructure. So yes. the pipes, the capture. These energy products are how we manage carbon. Right. Uh, I also want to, this is one of my things. The word decarbonization, I think, is a little bit of a term that we should get rid of because, okay. you know, you're made out of carbon. So to say decarbonization is kind of like saying we're going to eliminate people. And so it's not really probably the easiest way to solve this situation, but, you know, well, not so yeah, PC. Well, that's the root of it. That's why I don't like the word because it's yeah. not a reality-based philosophy because how can you decarbonize? You, you can't. We're made out of carbon. The, the table I'm sitting at is made out of carbon. Our world is made out of carbon. And so we have to not dump carbon into the atmosphere. Mm. But say that we're going to just avail ourselves of carbon is ridiculous. And further to that, you know, a solar panel, when you make a solar panel, you make it from coal. 
coals used to make solar panels. You know, the cement that the solar panel sits on, there's carbon being emitted there. So yeah. just a terrible word in my view, but not to harp on that point. That's fine. So so how would we reposition that or what is yeah, what is the better way to to speak to it? Yeah, well I think it's it's some of the messages I'm trying to outline here, which is the a view of carbon dioxide in the same way that we view other sorts of public infrastructure. So the water system, the sewer system, the the electricity system, these are public infrastructure ideas. So we put a value on not having sewage dumped on your front lawn. Right. Like we decided to do that in the 1800s. I see where you're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. I like this analogy. In the sense that we put a value on driving down nice, smooth, flat highways. And in in some worlds or some jurisdictions, those are toll highways. And that you can own that infrastructure. As an investor, grab your coupon for the the rest of time. The reality of it is, and when the water company or the we built the utility companies, those companies knew there'd be a rate base, you know, there'd be a toll. And they could generate a reasonable, predictable return on their investment capital. Yes. That allows the bond market and debt investors to invest on the debt side of the equation. And then equity investors who are expecting a dividend to invest on the equity side of the equation. And so that the overall cost of capital to create this public good is reasonable. And it's because the government has said, look, here's your rate base, here's the toll, here's a regulated return on building this public infrastructure. Gotcha. And now instead of having sewage pumped onto our lawn, this is equivalent of instead of having our invisible sewage pumped into the air. Exactly. Capturing that, returning it back to the earth and that becoming part of our infrastructure grid in our economies. That's exactly the vision that I believe we need to have because the vision or the problem we have right now is we sort of simplified this whole thing down to, you know, wind, solar, good, oil and gas, bad. It didn't work in animal farm. It's just not going to work in this. And Europe is showing us the reason why it's not working is mm. that you know, they've got electricity prices that have exploded you know, natural gas prices that have exploded, industries are shutting down, you know, people who are the bottom 75% of the population, so nearly everyone, you know, is under an incredible amount of pressure in terms of energy costs and maybe their job, they, you know, is on furlough because their factory just shut down. You know, we have a serious problem that needs to be solved, which is, The energy system today is 85% coal, oil, and natural gas. That energy demand is growing, and we have to come to terms with that, which is to say that reducing emissions, we're going to have to keep living with oil, gas, and coal. Yeah, yeah. We're not getting rid of them anytime soon. This is the sewage infrastructure. (laughs) Not to give you a shitty analogy, but yeah, the... At the end of the day, I, I think, though, that it's a necessary part of life and it'll allow us to, and, and to be clear, I'm not suggesting that this is a silver bullet or that this is the only solution. Yes. What I am saying, though, is that where 
know, wind and solar make a ton of sense, like in California or in Southern Alberta, where there's incredible renewable resources. We absolutely need to build as much renewable resource generating it that we can. But that's not true everywhere. You know, where renewables are less favorable and where we have favorable geology for carbon capture and storage, like every place there's a sedimentary basin, we can do this solution. And so it adds another tool to the toolkit. It also respects the fact that India and China have huge coal resources. They're going to keep burning coal. There's just no discussion around that point. So let's talk about that, though. Geopolitically, what's happening and what's going to happen in a world where in our developed countries, North America and, and Europe, we're seeing governments put greater and greater taxes and tolls on emissions and industry is shutting down. How do we reconcile that in less developed countries and, and up and coming countries like China and India, they're pumping emissions into the atmosphere without applying these carbon credits? And how is that going to shape out? Yeah, well, it's not going to. So so a couple of points, you're making some really important points. So I've created this term, I've coined this term, the carbon paradox. Mm. The carbon paradox is this, is this phenomena where you think you're doing the right thing, but in fact, you end up increasing emissions somewhere else. Okay. okay. So one example of this is, so in order of carbon intensity, wind and solar are the best, then natural gas, then oil, then coal, Okay. Uh, in terms of getting energy out of those things. But if you don't have enough energy because the wind isn't blowing and, or it's night, you end up using a higher intensity form. So you may have to turn on your coal plants again, like they are in Europe, yeah. or you have to run oil through a natural gas-fired turbine because the price of gas in Europe is 35 bucks a million BTU and it's cheaper to run oil through it. Yeah. Okay. So you always go down in the technology, you go up in carbon intensity when you have a mismatch in supply and demand. Right. Okay. Okay. So I call that the carbon paradox and you see it in California. So when California had blackouts last summer, they had to remove the restriction on diesel fire generators. So everyone who had a diesel gen set outside their business, just turn that on to make power. Right. Okay. So you get way more carbon out of that than if you had just done the natural gas with carbon capture. So that's one version of the carbon paradox. Another version of the carbon paradox is as follows. Germany used to be the dominant manufacturer of solar panels, but as they increase the amount of renewables in the electricity mix in Germany. The power prices in Germany have skyrocketed. They're the highest on in Earth. And so all the solar panel manufacturing moved to China. Solar panels are made with coal-fired electricity and coal-fired heat in China. And so that's a perfect example. Is like Germany thought they were doing the right thing. A critical industry, solar panel manufacturing, moved to China that has like uses coal. Yeah. Uh, so there, this is the irony a, in that, eh? Yeah. And so this problem is if we drive out industry in North America because we have unreliable power or expensive power, or both, we're going to have both on the track we're on, then we'll just end up buying more stuff from China. 
And China's power grid is twice as carbon intensive as the North American power grid. So let's put some numbers on it. It's 800 kilograms a megawatt hour in China because it's dominantly coal. And in the United States, it's around 400 kilograms per megawatt hour. And kilograms of carbon? Yes, of CO2 per megawatt hour of of electricity. Wow. So anytime that you move the manufacturing of something from the United States to China, you double how much CO2 is going to be put in the atmosphere to to produce that. Produce it good. That's the problem. So whenever we do, that's the carbon paradox, the second version of it, which is if we don't figure this out to have reliable and affordable power here, and we just make everything in China, the emissions will be worse. Absolutely. How do we solve this? And yeah, I think you started to allude to it where in the first example of the paradox, or it might've been the second, but in, in the sense that you've got this, this spectrum from, from the, the least carbon intensive power sources being solar and, and wind all the way down to oil, coal, and in California, before they know it, they're going to be burning tires. In that center is, is it sounds like something natural gas with a enhanced with carbon capture, yeah. uh, something like that. Is that where you see the solution lying? Yeah. So if you if you were to just imagine a triangle in your mind, so if, you know a triangle with three points. Okay. Yeah. On one point is carbon intensity. On the other point is affordability, and on the third point is reliability. Okay. Yeah. Every one of our energy choices plots on that triangle. So you, there, you can only get two. Can't you can have all two of the three. Yeah. So you can sacrifice one to get the other two. So let's go through a simple example, a solar panel. Okay. A solar panel is very good at carbon intensity. It's very good on affordability and it's utterly awful at reliability. Mm -hmm. There's night, for example, every day that turns to night. So we know that it's a problem, right? When you equip that solar panel with a battery, so now we've given up a whole bunch of carbon intensity because it costs carbon to make the battery. We have diesel and the mining equipment. We have to process the lithium. We have to manufacture the battery. So we, we now we have, we have more intensity. We have like way less affordability because it's expensive to make grid scale batteries. And we've only improved our reliability just a little bit. Okay, so four hours for a utility scale battery is around what those things are capable of doing. So you're stuck on this triangle. So when you could plot, say, natural gas with carbon capture, okay, we can have very good scores on carbon intensity because we can be zero. We have very good score on reliability because it's dispatchable baseload. The weather is irrelevant. So how much affordability did we give up? to get the carbon intensity and the reliability. And so in that example, we know that it's $5 a ton to do it. And so that's where this sort of, when you say, what do we need to do? Well, we need to look at the energy choices that are, that reality is forced on us. Physics is forced on us in this framework, which is how much intensity, how much reliability and how much affordability are we capable of optimizing around? And so the answer in China is going to be a different calculation than Southern California or Ohio because of the local conditions that exist in each of those places. And so there's no one answer to this problem. 
But what you do when you set a carbon price, we know then how much it'll cost. And then the market and people will figure out how to optimize that carbon intensity and that reliability on their own. But what we're doing is central planning. And that's why this will not work. That's why Europe's basically flying apart is they are using a central planning based approach where they're like, we're going to ignore the triangle. We're going to say wind and solar are the only answer that's acceptable. And so they're getting the carbon intensity figured out and they're completely not getting reliability and affordability. They presuppose they know the answer. So it sounds in that that failure will be potentially a, a very significant opportunity for moving down the the rung. How do you term it? You have energy production, let's say turbine or natural gas production, natural gas energy production, electricity production, combined with carbon capture. What is the, how do you term that? How do you phrase that? We've called this clean, firm power. Clean, firm? Clean, firm power. Okay. So clean means, you know, targeting zero CO2. Firm meaning... It's dispatchable, baseload. It's yep. when you need it, when you want it. You turn your light switch on at night, it's there. And power being electricity. And this sort of nomenclature, we also apply to hydrogen. Clean, firm hydrogen. Or clean, firm ammonia. Or clean, firm methanol. You know, these various energy products, energy carrier products that we can create that are available when we need them and that that have zero uh, CO2 emissions. Interesting. Yeah. It's a fascinating industry, man. But I think that, that for a lot of us, wrapping our heads around something that is also invisible can be very difficult to do. And then when you add to it, the, the difference between voluntary and regulated markets and on and on, it can get complicated. But I'm understanding now more and more how you're approaching this and can see why why you're doing so. With the carbon infrastructure partners model, you are going out to identify projects and invest in them as a private equity investor. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. So right now we have a deal pipeline that's actually a lot more robust than I even expected. And really what it is, is where there's a variety of developers. So that the a development team uh, for a carbon capture project would include, you know, perhaps a folks with oil and gas backgrounds, so like geologists and engineers, folks that may be in the power industry who understand gas turbines or, you know, are in the renewable diesel industry who understand, you know, that. And so it's this very interdisciplinary team of, of people from that understand, you know, power or hydrogen with subsurface expertise, you know, geology, right. team, the teams are, are bringing those two sort of things together. And the basic investments that we're making are backing those teams to acquire, you know, the the needed permits and engineering to develop the projects. So these are capital intensive projects. They they require, you know, 24, 36 months of engineering work and permits and you know, these are detailed industrial projects. And so those are the kinds of investments we're making now. And the investments you're making, are these analogous to the equivalent of an exploration project or a production project? Because it sounds to me like it's it's on the more the exploration side in the sense that there's a, a greater degree of risk. It's not as though it's just a established cash flow kind of situation. 
Exactly. We're, we are today scoping projects. You know, so the capital we're investing with development teams, you know, they're hiring engineering firms, they're applying for permits, they're establishing the, the regulatory filings uh, needed to actually do one of these projects. These are all new. They're all, this industry is the first, this is really the first set of commercial projects that have ever really been done. We have a lot of demonstration projects for carbon capture where the government paid for them all. But these are the first ones where the private sector is is going to develop them sort of on their own steam, per se, or find find underneath them. And so there is a need for upfront spending. And then there'll be a moment called final investment decision. And at final investment decision, the project financing will then be put in place. So the project debt capital, the project equity capital. So to do a simple example, let's say it's a billion dollar project. A reasonable expectation is perhaps you know, 25 or $30 million of upfront investment to figure out how to build a, a billion dollar machine. Yeah. You know, they don't just come out of a box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the moment of final investment decision, you know, what will then be available for investors to see is, okay, you know, perhaps it, there's a Department of Energy loan, you know, from the government of the United States. It's say 80% of the project. And those debt terms are favorable because the Department of Energy wants to sponsor the credit side for some of these early projects, you know, so perhaps it's 80% debt, you'll have that in place. And so then we know we need 20% equity. And so there would be a fundraise at that moment for $200 million of equity capital. That then is should appeal and we expect it to appeal to pension funds and folks that are long-term infrastructure-like investors. Mm-hmm. They'll invest the $200 million, uh, we'll build the project, and uh, then those projects have you know long life, 30, 40, 50 year operating lives, and where they'll have a cash on cash operating like rate of return, like any style business. Something that that I thought was uh, interesting to hear you say earlier was you've got quite a robust pipeline of deals already, you know, potential deals. And for any private equity or venture fund, they live and die by their deal flow. If you haven't got good deals, where are you going to put that capital? So how have you been able to assemble that that pipeline? And for anybody who is in the industry you are, what kind of tips and tricks have you been able to put to play that's that's benefited you? This is very much an emerging industry. So, you know, I, I, I certainly want everyone to understand that these are pioneering entrepreneurs who are, you know, striking out saying, I want to start a company doing carbon capture and storage. And so... Folks out of the oil and gas industry are, you know, often principals in on the teams. And so, you know, we just have a natural set of networks and relationships because we've, you know, been oil and gas investors. Um, and then I think another piece is, you know, we've just been out there promoting carbon capture and storage as an idea. Clean firm energy is an idea, clean firm power, clean firm hydrogen. So you know, we've been writing about this extensively and really trying to be thought leaders. But yeah, we're pretty early days. Like uh, this is really just a you know an emerging industry. So 
I think it's also sort of worth pointing out that, you know, there, there is policy changes that will be wind at our backs. Mm. So, you know, some of the, some of the projects where or companies we're investing with, you know, it might be a little early, like maybe their project needs a couple of tweaks on policy to, to be economic, but it's still worthwhile anticipating higher carbon prices and doing some of the upfront work and scoping work so that as policies change that you know you're you've got 18 months or 24 months of work sort of invested into a project because you know the 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 trick with all of this is you know to meet any of the goals 2030 2050 on emission reduction goals you know I, i think it's worth just saying that you know, a typical energy project is going to take six, seven, 10 years. I myself have been involved in some of our EMP companies for, you know, over 10 years as a director to bring a play, an oil play from acreage, you know, to having 10, 15,000 barrels a day. Some of this stuff has taken me a decade to get there. So mm. carbon capture and storage, you know, it does require lead times and engineering time construction time, all this sort of stuff. And so, you know, we are betting that carbon prices are heading higher, but we're also, you know, betting reliability of the energy system will help accelerate policy. And and I think we're seeing both of those uh, happen. It's really interesting to see the, the, the early stages of a new industry. So I'm enjoying hearing about that. Let's, let's aim to wrap up. And now I want to get your just final thoughts on the future of the carbon markets and how it's going to look. Yeah, areas that you really think are going to be be most interesting because we've talked a lot here, geopolitics, technology, forms of, of energy, all of that. Where are you most interested and where are you focused for the future? Yeah, you know, I think, again, those three themes, you know, higher energy prices, higher carbon prices, and less reliability. You know, I think in terms of statutory carbon markets or statutory regulated carbon prices, I mean, things like the Canadian Clean Fuel Standard and the Canadian Carbon Tax, there may be a carbon capture and storage investment tax credit. It was announced in the last federal budget, you know, post the election. We're hoping to see a greater form around what that'll look like. You know, in the United States, the clean electricity standard, which a version of that is in the reconciliation process, that will be a powerful driver for for carbon capture. Enhancements to 45Q, you know, greater adoption of, of things like the California low carbon fuel standard. You know, so where we see the regulated market, what, what I generally think is happening is we had sort of version 1.0 of carbon policies and carbon prices. And I think we're moving into a version 2.0 where we have policies designed specifically around electricity and around liquid fuels for transportation. And there's a few models out there that are paving the way. I've mentioned some of them here. And so I think we're going to just continue to see a greater certainty on carbon policies and pricing. And and with that, then solutions can be engineered and designed uh, to take advantage of that regulated carbon market. And so this is a, 
you know, it's complicated in that it, you know, the policy development process is, I believe, actually getting better because they're industry and academics and research institutes are, I think, communicating a little more and, and more effectively. But, you know, this stuff's complicated and, and uh, it's relatively slow going. And what I see the biggest risk of within all this is what I've called policy durability. So mm-hmm. that's, if we don't get it right. And it's $300 a barrel oil and a loaf of bread's 20 bucks and everyone's out of a job. That's a major risk for all the climate policies because governments can change and things can go wrong and uh, things can get out of hand quite quickly. And so that's uh, that's what I see as the biggest risk is if we don't sort of get the right solutions and right policies, there will be a backlash on uh, this whole idea. And so finding that balance and moving quickly, but also respecting affordability and reliability for regular folks, that's going to be the things that sustain policies. Gotcha. A very dynamic and a very complex world here when it comes to carbon and governments and all that, but really interesting. I've learned a lot in our time here and I want to wrap it up. Carboninfrastructurepartners.com. That's your website. How else can people follow your work? We've been uh, publishing different articles in like Power Magazine and the Globe and Mail. And so we have a LinkedIn, you know, feed website. And uh, but we're also happy to just, you know, for folks that are interested in talking to us, you know, drop me an email and, you know, I'd love to do a love to do a call and just, you know, be introduced to people. Awesome. Well, that's great. Thank you for your time. Okay. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.